0: This podcast details true crime cases. It contains adult themes and may contain descriptions of violence. It is not intended for children. Listener discretion is advised.
1: Thank you for joining me for this episode of Once Upon a Crime. So first off, I want to explain this episode and why it's going to be a little different than normal. My original plan was to continue the series, Infamous Locales. I had one ready that went out on CrimeCon week while I was gone, or right when I was getting back from CrimeCon, May 7th, and then I came back and continued working on the next episode, which is the one that came out on the 14th. So after that, of course, my following Monday was going to be episode 90 on May 21st. But I had another trip scheduled that I had to go on. I'm actually flying back across the country to go to North Carolina. My brother is getting married. So I realized when I got back that I really didn't have quite enough time to do justice to the next episode that I wanted to do as far as getting all the research done. And uh, because there's quite a bit um, on this next episode that I'll be doing and as a matter of fact i was thinking it might even be a two parter so i didn't want to rush it so to that end i decided what i was going to do instead was to give you guys an episode that's kind of a wrap up episode as far as what happened at crimecon and um some extras too not just you know what happened and what i did but also kind of what i learned and talking a little bit about some cases that you guys I know are very fascinated with, like I am. So we'll be doing some little tidbits on those too. I was going to do this as a Patreon bonus episode. At least I was going to try to get this out for that. But for now, I'm going to go ahead and put it out on the regular feed as my regular Monday episode so that I don't rush the next episode out. Um, Because travel, as you know, can be quite stressful and draining, Um, And everything else that I have to do while I'm you know, with family and all that, it's going to make it a little difficult for me to actually work while I do that. So I didn't want to cheat either one, I guess I put it that way. I don't want to cheat family, I don't want to cheat my listeners, and so I decided to do this this way. But I hope you enjoy it, because I have been putting the notes together for this for the last day or two, and I'm really kind of excited about what I'm going to share with you guys. What I'll do first is give you the CrimeCon wrap up who I met, who I talked to, some information on your favorite podcasters I got to meet and talk to and hang out with, and also what I learned from sessions that I was able to attend. As you guys probably know, this is the second year of CrimeCon, that is a conference that's dedicated to all kinds of true crime genres. So there's podcasts, there's television shows. There's series, there's documentaries, there's true crime authors, there's people who, inv- who are involved in true crime cases, like investigators and, and all kinds of things. So this is the second year. Last year was in Indianapolis and podcasters were a big part of that. And I was asked to be one of the people who was on what they call Podcast Row, which was a big hall full of tables with podcasters there that listeners could come and meet talk to, take pictures, get goodies that we were giving out, all kinds of things. So this is the second year, and it was at the Gaylord Resort Hotel in Nashville, Tennessee. I had never been to Nashville, so I was excited about that. They did it a little different this year than they did last year. They had a hall, but it wasn't just dedicated to Podcast Row. There was more of that last year as far as they did have some vendors and things on Podcast Row, but they were pretty much kind of set apart. We were set apart in one area. And this time there was the podcasters, but there was also vendors and other, you know, other displays and, and different kinds of things. So apparently that led to less space for podcasts. So they kind of pick and chose who was going to be there. There was still about 30 podcasters there, I believe, or podcasts. But a lot of people who were there the first year were not included on the program this year. But we decided, because we a lot of us had already planned to go, we decided to go anyway because we had such a great time meeting the listeners and we knew that the listeners wanted us to come back. So we went anyway and we kind of wandered around and met people on the row anyway. And people found us, and it was great. It was really a lot of fun. And one of the other big reasons that I like to go is because I want to see all my podcaster friends. We all are in different places. Some of us are in other countries, other states, and it's a place for us all to get together and have a great time and just reconnect. So we'll be talking about some of that. But because I wasn't on podcast row, you know, like I didn't have set times that I had to be there, I was able to attend some other sessions, so I can talk to you a little bit about that. And what I liked about those is some of them tied into cases that I'd already done, some of them tied into things that I thought about, about other cases that I'm always talking about and learning about, and I can share some of those things with you. And the last thing that I'm going to do on this episode is at the end, I'm going to give you info on the upcoming second anniversary of the show. And how you can be a part of that, because that's coming up actually next month. So before we get started with all of this, I am going to take a quick break for our sponsor. So let's start off with my travel to CrimeCon. So I had to travel from California to Tennessee, and there were some delays in travel, but it wasn't that big a deal. I had to first stop at Dallas-Fort Worth, of course, a major hub, and then on to Nashville from there. There was some weather. Texas, as we know, they tend to have weather. Unlike California, it's pretty much the same all year long. So it was a little bit of a delay. But, you know, I was ready to go. I had all my podcasts downloaded to listen to on the plane. I had a couple of great true crime audiobooks. So I was, I was cool. That was no problem at all, just a little bit of a delay. It was my first time going to Nashville, so that was really exciting. I didn't really know what to expect, although I had been to a Gaylord Resort Hotel, one in Grapevine, Texas, and I knew it was huge. So I was already ready for that. I was ready with the comfortable shoes. I was ready knowing that I was going to be doing a lot of walking, all of those things. So, of course, when I did arrive, finally, it was a little bit late. Um, not super late, but it was later than, I. you know, it was like after dinner time, there was going to be like a dinner meet up with a lot of podcasters who were coming in on Thursday, because the actual conference started on Friday, Friday afternoon. But I didn't make that um, because they were doing it kind of away from the hotel, and and by the time I would have got there, it would have been too late. So got to the hotel, and of course the size it was huge. It was you know the Gaylord Resort hotels. If you guys haven't been there; it's like a little city. There's you know the hotel, but there's. Everything is inside. There's like a river walk. There's even a boat that goes through the river walk thing. There's restaurants and shops and and all kinds of things. And of course, the conference center is also in there, which is kind of at the back, a little bit further away from some of the hotel rooms, um, like where mine was situated. So it was a little confusing when we got there, trying to figure out where the room was. They give you this map. You might have heard this on other podcasts if they talked about CrimeCon. Everybody was walking around lost, like, where is my room? But, you know, after we we finally figured out where it was, we were good to go. But it was beautiful in there. It's a beautiful, beautiful resort, and um, it was just really, really a nice place. So, as I said, I got there a little bit late. My sister, Yolanda, from Not Perfect or Functional, was there with her husband, Mark, who is also the co-host of Not Perfect or Functional podcast and we met up for dinner that night because we both got there i think she got there a little earlier than i did she actually had to drive in um she's from texas but uh she so she drove although it was a long drive she was able to drive and we kind of met up that night so that was pretty much it for the first night just kind of figuring out where to go where we're we going to be and all this and really what we we're planning to do the next day is all we had to do is register and then kind of start with the conference that started around noon or one o'clock. So the next morning, I started kind of early because I actually had a meeting there in the morning where I had somebody who was coming in from another place who was going to be in Nashville and be at the at the convention. And we decided to meet up that morning. So went downstairs. It was, you know, around breakfast time. And the first thing I did was run into Justin and Aaron that, from Gen Y. They were just getting there. They were just checking in, um, and and they had, you know, their suitcases and get ready to go to their room, and they had their little map, and they said, oh, we're, we're trying to figure out where to go. They gave us this map, and I said, first thing you need to know is that map will do you no darn good. <laughs> so so they were like, oh, God, this is not good. So I tried to direct them because they were kind of in the same general area I was, I said, you know, just follow this, and when you see this, turn this way, and when you get lost, not if you get lost, but when you get lost, just ask somebody along the way, how do I get to this place? And I said, people are very helpful. So I said, you will be lost, but probably not for too long. So <laughs> so that was, uh, you know, it was nice to see them right away. Um, I've known them for quite a while. So, you know, it's kind of like, oh gosh, a familiar face. That's that's great. So Then afterwards, we had to go to registration, and that was the other thing, is trying to find where to register. Like I said, this place is huge. You walk all the way to the back where the conference center is, and then you see this big, empty convention center because there's huge rooms and ballrooms and breakout rooms and hallways. And so we kind of went up and down stairs and up and down escalators until we finally found it and it was funny because once we got our badges, as we were walking out, we saw them putting signs up that says crime con registration this way. So I guess we got there a little bit too early. That's why there was no markers and we just kind of had to figure out where we were going. So the first thing once the conference started is I headed to podcast row because I wanted to see the podcasters. Um I wanted to see some of my friends. I wanted to see people who I've talked to for a while, have been connected with on social media, but had not met in person. And you guys, if you ever get a chance to go to any event where you have all these podcasters, it's just so much fun because you get to match faces with the voices that you already know. And it's just really, it's really exciting. It's really, really fun. And everybody says that's one of the best parts of it. So the first people I came upon, I'll give you a list of all the people that I came upon. And there's there was so many more, but these are the ones that I got to spend some time with and say hello to and people that I've known and people that I wanted to meet So Erica Kelly from Southern Fried True Crime was there. She's amazing. She's so cool and fun and down to earth and funny. And I just loved her. And I knew I would because I love her show and I love what she does. And I just knew I'd love her. So she was there. Steven from Trace Evidence was there. Like me, he was kind of wandering around because he didn't have a table. But he was easy to find because he had his shirt on. And of course, I've seen pictures of him, so I knew what he looked like. So he was there. And I know I've kind of promoted his show on my podcast. He does an amazing show. My sister, Yolanda, talked to him for quite a while about one of his cases because she had gotten really into the details of it and got to spend some time and and really pick his brain about that case. So that was a lot of fun. Um, I first met Mike. uh, I hadn't met him before from Dark Poutine podcast, another Canadian podcaster. He's a real fun guy. I'm like really starting to listen to his podcast now The thing is, when you're podcasting, it's really hard to find time to listen to all the podcasts you want to. But once you kind of get to meet some of these guys, you're like, oh, my God, I have to listen to this podcast because I just love this guy so much and he's so fun. And, you know, and so I just started listening to some of his episodes now. Of course, Charlie from Insight was there. And Charlie and I have pretty much started our podcast almost the exact same time. I think she was a little bit before me, maybe a few weeks or a month. And uh, Charlie's amazing. She's awesome. If you guys don't listen to Insight, um, you should definitely be listening. So, so her and Allie do a great—they do great research, and then they do like a discussion type, kind of like Gen Y does. But they're—you know—two women instead of the two men like at Gen Y. But but they do a great—a great show. So she was there, and she was kind of like—I want to call her like the den mother of podcast row. <laughs> and I didn't—I didn't tell her that, but maybe I should. Because she had told us, um, she had a table and she said, if any, you guys don't have a table, you can come and you can bring stuff to put down. So I had brought a whole bunch of buttons, these little buttons. I thought, oh, those are fun. Oh my gosh, people love buttons. I realized I should have brought more um, buttons and stickers and things and and put those down there. And that was also kind of like the hub of where we would go to check in and meet up with people and, and whatever, because... Charlie, everybody knows Charlie, and that was kind of the marker of where we were all going to congregate when we didn't have home on Podcast Row, so that happened. Other people I saw there were Haley and Jess from Murder Road Trip, which was fun um, to see them and hang out with them a little bit. Everything moved so fast that it was hard to spend a whole lot of time with people um, on Podcast Row. Lainey from True Crime Fan Club was there. Eileen and Colleen from Misconduct, Tyler and Beck from Minds of Madness. Now, I had never gotten to meet uh, Tyler and Beck before. They're also Canadian podcasters. I love his show; it's amazing. You guys, if you haven't started listening to Minds of Madness, that's one is just so so well done. And so they were there, and it was funny because he was standing at his table and he was kind of fanning himself and. He said, it's too hot in here, although we're inside and it's air conditioned. But he was kind of by like a big window. So I think there was a little bit of heat coming from there. And he just explained, he's from Canada. They don't do heat. They don't understand this southern heat thing, which I totally get. So uh, he was trying to keep himself cool there. but, But he had a lot of people coming over to talk to him as well. Marissa from The Vanished was there. Of course, she's very popular and she does a great show. Uh, She was there. Uh, Lisa from Crime and Precedence, like me, was wandering around. Lisa was also there last year. A lot of us were there last year, actually. The Vanish was there last year. Crime and Precedence was there last year. Um, Insight, you know, I was there. Um, Nina from Already Gone. So these people were there. Nina from Already Gone was there. You guys probably know Nina. She has a great um, show about missing you know, missing people and unsolved cases. Uh, Christy from Canadian True Crime, who I really was excited to meet because we back and forth had talked over social media and things like that, but I finally got to meet her. Laura and Brooke from The Fall Line. They're just so much fun. You guys, I don't know if you listen to The Fall Line. It's a serialized podcast. They finished their first season, which was an amazing case. Um, and then the second one, and I believe they're starting their third season now or their third series now, I should say. But yeah, check them out because they're they're awesome. So they were a lot of fun to hang out with actually all weekend. I kept running into them and hanging out with them. Steven um from Is This Adulting was there. He was he's so funny. He was like, Oh, he was he started talking and I knew his voice. And I said, Oh, you're Steven. and he looks at me like do you know me? <laughs> and it was like, I was like, yeah, we know you. Hello. And he was very uh, surprised because he's like, I don't think anybody would know me. I'm like, no, if you listen to podcasts, you get to know people's voices and you're like, oh, that's you. You know, so it was really fun to kind of do that. Everybody's walking around listening to everybody and saying, oh, I know who you are. Um, so while I was there that morning on Friday or afternoon, I did a live video on Facebook. It's pretty short. It was, you could, but if you want to check that out, you can kind of see what it looked like and how loud it was and how busy it was. Um, and that's still, I believe, you can pull that up on the Facebook page and um, watch that. It's only a, a few minutes long, a couple of minutes long. So, of course, the rock stars there on Podcast Row would be Bob Ruff from Truth and Justice. He had a a bunch of people around his table. Aaron and Justin, of course, from Gen Y, are always very popular. And they had a lot of people coming up, you know, to see them and take pictures. And then Nick and the captain had a line out the door (laughs) of people waiting to see them. So at that time, when I saw these guys, I'm like, okay, I'll talk to them later because I am not standing in a long line um, and I know I'll see them later. So I just kind of, as I walked by, waved and kind of uh, said, "Ah, I'll see them later. But the sessions, when I go into the sessions, I'm going to do a little bit of information on some of the things I learned, at least on a couple of these. So the first session I went to was Diane Lake, and she was one of the very, very young members of the Manson family. She lived out on Spawn Ranch. Um, She wrote a book called A Member of the Family. And I did go see her presentation because I'm always very interested in the Charles Manson case and. All of that. So she was very interesting to listen to. She was able to give some kind of like take you into what it was like to be on Spawn Ranch, how she ended up there, talking a little bit about her background. She was kind of pretty much abandoned by her parents who decided to join the hippie counterculture at the time and with as what they call drop out. And so she ended up with the the family. Um, the Manson family, as it would later be called, and end up living out on Spahn Ranch. Um, she was the one who apparently, when Leslie Van Houten came back, I believe it was from the La La Bianca murder, that she told her what had happened. So, um, so it's a very interesting book if you guys haven't read that book yet. I have not, but I've perused it a little bit, and I did get to see her presentation. So if you're interested in that at all, that might be a book you want to check out. And then I was really interested to go to Jim Fitzgerald. Um, his session was Cracking the Unabomber Case. If you know Jim Fitzgerald, he worked with the FBI, and he, he's an expert in forensic linguistics. And he talked about the Unabomber Case, which I was really interested in. Um, I had followed it, you know, a long time ago. I had just recently went to the FBI experience at the FBI building in Washington, D.C. I had also gone to the museum in Washington, D.C., where they have the Unabomber cabin. So I was kind of that was kind of on my mind already. So and I love I love when they pull apart language, kind of look at it and get clues to figure out either profiling a perpetrator or trying to identify something as far as solving a case. And so I love that kind of stuff. If you remember this, um, I don't know if you've seen this or if you read any of his books or you've seen on one of the documentaries where he talks about the Unabomber case. Of course, you know, the Unabomber had sent the manifesto, the whole thing, right? So he was the person who took the letter and went through all those words, all of those sentences and kind of pulled out things and said, how could we maybe identify who this person is from the language that he uses and the way he uses it. So that's fascinating to me. The manifesto was heck long. And <laughs> I guess he had to go through like tons of, of words and things. But one of the ones that I remember, and he talked about it as well in the presentation, is that the Unabomber had written a phrase that said, you can't eat your cake and have it too. And if you guys know that saying, the saying goes, You can't have your cake and eat it too. But he said it mixed up. So I've never heard anybody say it that way. And that's what Jim Fitzgerald said. He had never heard anybody say it that way to say, you can't eat your cake and have it too. And he thought, I wonder if that's something this person regularly says. And if so, might somebody recognize that and say, oh, the only person I know who says it that way is such and such. So that's kind of what happened. At least that was one of the clues from the manifesto. And if you remember the case, um, maybe from, you know, the Netflix thing that just came out, which, of course, was dramatized. But he talked about that as well as what actually what parts of those were actually, you know, correct. And they they did base it on the actual case. And but some of the people were composite figures and that kind of thing. But um, but if you remember, they wanted to get the whole manifesto published. Um, and because they thought, well, if we do that, then maybe somebody will recognize or maybe it'll be a clue to somebody or somebody will get a tip or something, which is exactly what happened when they were actually able to do that, because the um, Ted Kaczynski's brother is the one who recognized those words, the way he said things, that that was his brother's language. And so that was like one of their best tips that they got, and they were able to follow that and you know, ultimately arrest and try and convict the Unabomber. So, but as far as forensic linguistics, there's a couple of other cases that I wanted to bring up really quickly because I just find it so fascinating. And there's things like that that jump out at me. And I'll tell you why I think that probably is. Number one, I think, is because I'm a huge reader. Like, language is my thing because I read so much. I remember things that I read, the way things are you know, written or the way people speak is very kind of important to me. As a matter of fact, when I'm reading fiction and there's conversation in it, if it doesn't sound natural, like the way people speak, I cannot read that book. Like I'm like, but nobody talks like that. That doesn't sound right. It's really distracting for me. So I have an ear for what things sound like, I guess. So when I'm researching true crime cases, sometimes things will pop out at me and I'll give you a couple of examples. And I was talking about this the other day. I actually got to speak to a um, some high school classes. And it was really cool because it's a general site class, but they're doing a unit on forensic psychology. So the teacher, one of the teachers listens to my podcast and she invited me to come and speak to the class, which was really cool because I haven't been in, a, in a, on a high school campus in a while, But <laughs> but it was really kind of fun to be there again. Um, and this was Independence High School in San Jose. So shout out to Independence High School in San Jose. Um, I got to, you know, hang out with the psychology students there and give a little presentation and answer some questions and talk about podcasting and talk about true crime. But anyway, one of the ones that came up was the John JonBenet Ramsey case. And, you know, you guys know the John Bonet Ramsey I'm not going to go into that. But what I am going to say is just to kind of pull out language that really stood out to me when I was reading and watching things about uh, the John Benet Ramsey case. As we know, there's a bunch of weird, really weird things in that, including the ransom note, including the fact that her body was found inside the house, when supposedly she was kidnapped. I mean, there was all kinds of things on and on. But one of the things that really struck me way early on was Patsy Ramsey's language that she used in a couple of different Context: One was the 911 call, and the other was her television interviews that she did, some press conferences. So the first thing I'm going to do is I'm going to play you the 911 call. It's only a couple minutes long. You might have heard it before, but it could refresh your memory about what I'm going to talk about right after.
0: 911 emergency. Police. Please. 15th Street. What's going on there, ma'am? We a kidnapping. All right, please. Explain to me what's going on, okay? There, we have a, left. There's a note left and our daughter's gone. A note was left and your daughter is yes. gone? How old is your daughter? Six years old. She's gone. Six years old. How long ago was it? I don't know. I just found the note. And my daughter's is the day who took her. What? Is it the the gender? I don't know. It's, there's, a, there's a ransom note here. It's a ransom note? It says S B T C. Victory. Please. Okay, what's your name? Are you happy Pat? I'm the mother. Oh, my God. Please. I'm Okay, I'm sending an officer over, okay? Please. Do you know how long she's been gone? No, I don't. Please, we just got out and she not here. Oh, my God, please. Okay, please. Now, somebody. I am, honey. Please. Take a deep breath Please. Me, okay? Hurry, 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 hurry. Patsy? Patsy?
1: Patsy? Patsy? So after listening to that, maybe it jumped out at you, too. But the number one thing that stood out to me was that she doesn't mention her daughter first. The first thing she does is she says, I need the police. Now, that could make sense because you're trying to get help. So I have no problem with that. But then she says, we have a kidnapping, which to me was really odd because I thought the first thing you would say would be, my daughter's been kidnapped or somebody took my daughter or my daughter is missing or my child is missing, or my baby is missing, that kind of thing. So she said, we have a kidnapping. And then she mentions the ransom note. She said that there was a ransom note. And I went through this call several times. I kept playing it over because I thought, why is that Why is that kind of bother me? She mentions the ransom note no less than four times in that call, which is a very short call. She finally identifies her daughter when she is asked by the 911 operator, where she says, how old is she? Then she says, six years old. Because she says, my daughter, your daughter could be 20. You know, who knows? And she finally says, how old is your daughter? She says, six years old. The next thing she says is, she's blonde. She doesn't say her name. She doesn't say Bonet. She says, she's six years old. She's blonde she's six years old. Six years old is just answering the question that the 911 operator asked. But the thing that really stuck out to me in this as I listened to it over and over is when she asked her to identify herself. She says, I'm Patsy Ramsey. I'm the mother. I'm the mother? That was really odd to me. I don't know if, you know, I could be pick- just pick- nitpicking here, but I think this is what forensic linguistics is about. As you kind of nitpick this stuff and you say, "What does that mean? Why does that strike me as odd?" She says, "I'm the mother, not. She's my daughter. I'm her mother. I'm John Bonet's mother. That kind of thing." And the thing is, for me, I guess what I thought right away when I heard this was she's distanced herself from this person who is missing, who is her baby, instead of saying, "My daughter's missing." She says, We have a kidnapping. Instead of saying, I'm her mother, I'm John Bonet's mo- mother, or I'm Patsy Ramsey, John Bonet's my baby. None of that. It's like a distancing from this person, which is really odd. So, again, it's a nitpicky thing, I know, but it really kind of stood out for me. And then there was other things later on that kind of played into that as well, where I felt like looking at all of the things that you, we find out later about her, it seemed like she was very close to her daughter. She did all these pageants with her. She spent a lot of time with her. Um, the neighbors would say, and the friends, and neighbors would say that she was always with John Bonet. John Bonet was her whole life. Um, so she seemed like a very involved mother. It wasn't like you know this kid had nannies galore and was never home and. So the fact that she's distancing herself um, with her language makes me feel like there was a reason for that. Like she already knew what happened to her or she was trying to distance herself from whatever had happened to her. So that was kind of what came out for me. So then, because I was so interested in that, I went to, if you guys saw, it came out last year, two or three-part special on CBS called The Case of John JonBenet Ramsey. It was a CBS series that the People from Real Crime Profile podcast put on with Jim Clemente and Laura Richards. They had all their experts there to kind of go over the case. And one of them was Jim Fitzgerald. I wanted to go back and watch that again. And he did analyze the 911 call. And he said the very fifth word, which is the same thing that I had picked out, he said when she said, we have a kidnapping. And he also noticed, too, that she doesn't mention Bonet's name, which is the other thing that I noticed. And then they went into some of the the ransom note and that kind of thing. Um, but yeah, check that out. You can still find that online. It's a really interesting thing. But the other thing, too, was the media appearances they did. First of all, they did a CNN interview, a kind of a press conference, before they had even spoken with police. they had never sat down and had a formal interview with police, but they went on television to do, like, a statement to the media. That one, if you remember, was one that people just thought, I don't know what's going on with this woman, but it seems kind of fake. I mean, she seemed upset, of course, but some of the things that she said, again, seemed to me was a little bit like she was distancing herself. The one that stood out to me is when she said, I did not kill John Bonet. I loved that child. Again, when they say that child, when they don't say "I love my daughter," I would never hurt my daughter. When she says that child again, that's a distancing thing to me. Just a little bit odd. So um, then they went into, like I said, the ransom note and some of the words that were used there. But if you guys want to watch that, you should you know check it out if you haven't seen it. But you can find it. So one more case I wanted to talk about, and I did actually um, bring this up on a Patreon episode, but it was something that just kind of again, it was it was. My thoughts, my ideas, it's not, as far as I know, ever been investigated or analyzed or talked about or anything on anything that I know of. It just stood out to me, and this was from the Ted Bundy case. So, if you guys remember, when I did my Survivor Story series, I talked to Rhonda Stapley, who had written a book about her attack by Ted Bundy and her escape. So, I had also read her book before I even talked to her. I don't know if you guys know this or might have mentioned it way back early on one of the podcast episodes, but I, ha- I have been trained as a therapist. I did work counseling people for several years. I do have a degree and uh, a master's in counseling psychology. So a lot of this kind of plays into things. When I'm researching and discussing cases, it kind of some of these things pop out and kind of help me out. So one of the things that really kind of struck me about Her account of when she was being attacked by Ted Bundy is, first of all, the fact that sometimes people don't, well, you don't, you're not going to know this because most of his victims, of course, died. The other person who escaped was Carol DeRanche, and he was not able to get to the point like he did with Rhonda. Unfortunately, she was attacked. She was raped. Um, He was in the process of killing her. When she was you know able to get away, and that was just a freak kind of accident thing and again you got you got to listen to that because it's an amazing story but so of course, we only have very limited amount of information about people who had been attacked by Bundy, that he had talked to them he had they had been able to hear his words of what he was saying, and Rhonda was one of one of the very few and here's the thing that again about forensic linguistics is. Words that people use are very important. They're not used lightly, especially when they're used when somebody is angry or stressed or it's a, you know an intense kind of reaction and the words they use are very important. And again, this is something I learned as I was counseling people and listening to people and, and responding to what was going on with them. So what he said to her, and she remembered it very, very clearly, was as he was choking her until she passed out but he wouldn't choke her till she died then he'd let her come to then he'd do it again and it happened two or three times and it was just the last time he thought that she was out for the count i think and she wasn't and that's how she ended up being able to somehow escape but when she came to one of the times she was you know screaming and crying and begging for her life and saying you know let me go if you let me go, I'll never tell anybody, you know, all of the things that you would say if you're trying to save your own life. Well, when she did that, when she was crying and begging him, he got very, very angry. She said up until that time, he was pretty calm. You know, it was very matter of fact, which had made it even more frightening. But he got very, very angry at her. And he told her, you don't have the right to scream and cry. You're lucky you're even alive. And for me, when I heard that, I thought the first thing that came to my mind is, where did he hear those words before? He has heard those words before. And for whatever reason, I just believe that to be true. And I thought, OK, got to remember, Ted Bundy was adopted and raised by his grandparents, but he didn't know for a long time because his mother had gotten pregnant when she was young and wasn't married and came home. And the. Then her parents raised Ted as their own, and he thought his mother was his sister for a long time. Until later on, I think they said when he's a teenager, he found out. And that had to be traumatic. And he always said that he had a wonderful life. He was not abused, blah, 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 which, you know, everybody's always try- trying to look for what the heck happened and why did he become Ted Bundy, right? Um, but he you know insisted that he had never been abused, that everything was fine, that he didn't have any problems. Later on, he would say that it was tied to pornography. Um, but it seemed like that came out way later on. It wasn't something that he talked about, you know, early or anything. So we don't know whether that's really a factor or not. But I wonder if he wasn't at least verbally abused by his perhaps grandparents. And I'm thinking this sounds like a male speaking to him. You don't have the right to scream and cry. You don't have the right. That sounds like a parent. That sounds like an authority figure telling you what your rights are and aren't. So I kind of wonder if that wasn't maybe his grandparent, maybe his grandfather. You're lucky you're even alive. I'm thinking you can extrapolate that and say, you're lucky we even take care of you. You're lucky you even live here. You're lucky we didn't just give you to an orphanage because you are an illegitimate child. You're not ours. So that, again, just a theory. It's my theory, but it really popped out at me again. And this has to do with the whole idea of forensic linguistics that I find really fascinating. So you can tell me what you think of that, or you think it's a bunch of malarkey, (laughs) whatever. It's fine with me. I um, I just found it very interesting. So before I get to the rest of what I learned at CrimeCon, we're going to take another quick break from our sponsor. So, like I said, CrimeCon, um, there was a bunch of us that went and we weren't on the program, but we decided what we were going to do because we didn't know whether our listeners were going to be able to find us that easy or whatever on podcast row. So we decided to put together a meetup Friday night, and it was going to be there at the hotel at a place called the Fuse Lounge. And we just put it out, and let everybody know that we were going to be there starting at eight o'clock and anybody can come and just hang out and hang out at the bar, you know, have a conversation, have a drink, whatever. So what happened was like the week before CrimeCon was going to happen, the big guys also said, hey, we're going to be there too and told their listeners. So Bob Ruff said he was going to be there, Aaron Justin from Gen Y, Nick and the Captain. So now we knew we were going to have a crowded a crowded house, right? So who was there? Listeners, of course. Tons of listeners. It was hard to get names and remember them. It was very loud and very noisy. I did post pictures, um, so you can check those out on our Instagram page or the Facebook page. Um, Bethany came. She had made a T-shirt with podcasters' names on it, and she had my name on it, which was a first for me. It was very exciting. So I took a picture with Bethany. Tiffany was there. She was there all weekend at at the conference and, and... She was taking pictures with everybody. She's kind of, you know, a fan of a lot of podcasts, and she's really cool. And uh, so she was there. Um, But there were so many listeners. I mean, and anywhere you looked in a corner or in, you know, at a table or at the bar, there was podcasters with listeners just hanging out and having a good time. So, like I said, some of the podcasters that were there were Bob Ruff from Truth and Justice. You can't miss Bob Ruff. He's a big, gentle giant, um, and he was having so much fun. I had pictures of him, too. Um, just there having conversations with listeners everybody if you listen to truth and justice you think he's so serious he's not he was just having a great time with everybody and having a beer and just hanging out Aaron and Justin from Gen Y they were there Aaron um we were there when I first got there he was there and he's like it's too loud I can't hear anything so some people kind of went out um found other quieter places outside to kind of hang out and talk and so he was one of those that did that he kind of wandered in and out uh, throughout the night but he was around nick and the captain i believe nick was there i caught it was so many people i know the captain was there because he had a crowd of people around him all the time um and it, there was i did have some pictures of them who else was there charlie from insight was there of course uh Lisa from Crime and Precedents, Nina from Already Gone, Eileen and Colleen uh, from Misconduct, Yolanda and Mark uh, from Not Perfect or Functional, Brooke and Laura from The Fall Line, Lainey from True Crime Fan Club, Erica from Southern Fried True Crime, and Beck and Tyler from um, Minds of Madness, and so many other others there. But those are the ones I remember off the top of my head. Um, and then guess what happened? So we're, we're hanging out. It's probably about I mean, 10 o'clock or so. Uh, Dateline walks in. Josh Mankiewicz was there. And we met him last year at CrimeCon. He was there by himself. So, as far as you know, Dateline people, he was there, um, the only one who came, and he did a presentation. But he would just hang out, like in the bar at night, and have he, he was just drinking like Diet Coke and hanging out and talking to everybody and taking pictures and, you know. So we got to meet him and got to know him last year a little bit. Um, so he was back and he brought his whole crew with him this time. Um, Keith Morrison. Oh my God, you guys! Keith Morrison. You cannot, you cannot not know who Keith Morrison is. As soon as you see him, he always looks like Keith Morrison, and you know the tall, kind of lanky guy with the white, you know, hair. And he's just, you know, he's Keith Morrison. So everybody was going up to him, taking pictures. Uh, Dennis Murphy was there, also from Dateline, and people were taking pictures with him. All very nice people. Of all of them, I'd say Keith Morrison is a little bit more subdued, but he was still very nice and friendly and still took pictures and, you know, hung out with people and whatever. And also, um, Josh Mankiewicz's brother, Ben Mankiewicz, was there. I don't know if you guys know Ben Mankiewicz, but you probably know if you saw him. A couple of places you might know him from is from Turner Classic Movie Channel. He's the host of—he's the one that introduces some of the movies. Um, He's been there a long time. I also know him from from a podcast and a YouTube channel called The Young Turks. It's a political podcast, and he's on there quite a bit. He's one of the, the, the co-hosts of the show. So he was there. Um, so it was kind of cool to see Josh and his brother together. So that was Friday night. Um, probably stayed out too late there, just kind of hanging out. We ended up just hanging out with—last uh, year I got to meet uh, these really cool uh, ladies. They're from the Lake— Lucy Murder Guild um, and so they were there I was really excited to see them again so we ended up hanging out with them at the end and kind of just you know talking about podcasts talking about you know whatever and we had a good time and we kind of closed down the bar actually so um, Saturday got back you know to the conference podcast row again um, Nick and the captain still had a line out the door Jen Wyatt oh and then Undisclosed I forgot to tell you and Undiscl- the Undisclosed team was there so Rabia Colin and Susan were there I got to meet them and take a picture with them, and they're so cool and nice, and I ran into my friend J.V., also known as Mixter Hyde, also known as host of Red Wing, the audio drama podcast, and so that was great, because we had talked before, social media, gotten to know each other for quite a while, actually, maybe about a year, and then finally met at CrimeCon, which was awesome. Um Oh, and then I got to meet Laura Richards from Real Crime Profile. She was there, and we walked up and took a picture with her and talked a little bit about some of the, the causes that she champions are anti-stalking and um, anti-domestic violence, and so we talked a little bit about that. She's awesome and amazing and um, just really, really sweet. And other sightings were Jim's. I saw Jim Clemente and Jim Fitzgerald both there and also Tim Clemente that day. Um, So, yeah, it's just amazing to walk around and see all these people, people that you've seen on TV, people that you followed their careers, people that, you know, you know, from other from cases and things just to see everybody. And, of course, all the people connected to the Golden State Killer case, Billy Jensen, who was an investigative journalist who helped complete the book, um, I'll Be Gone in the Dark, that was Michelle McNamara's book, uh, Debbie Domingo, Michelle Cruz, who were, um, you know, victims or uh, family members of victims of the Golden State Killer. Um, Paul Haynes was there and Paul Holes. Now, Paul Holes was one of the people working on this cold case for, you know, quite some time. And he's kind of like the new, oh, I don't know what you would call him. He He's kind of, I guess, the the new true crime heartthrob because <laughs> everybody was so enamored of Paul Holes and he just, as he was at CrimeCon, he just started Twitter and he sent out his first tweet. So now you guys got to go follow Paul H- Paul Holes on Twitter. He's just, he's amazing. He's really nice. Really nice guy, you guys. Um, but he's kind of like the new Dean Strang. Remember when Dean Strang, The make a Murder, he was kind of like the heartthrob. I think Paul Holes is now, you know, taking over that that role. So I went to the Undisclosed panel. They were talking about undoing the conviction of um, Adnan Syed, uh, which was great. Each one of them took a turn talking about their part of it. And they're very, all very, very good speakers. Of course, you know, if you listen to Undisclosed, you know that. So that was fun to see them do that live. Um, Bob Ruff, um, he was talking about the misconceptions in the West Memphis 3 case. And he had this whole slide presentation of the whole map, like what he's been talking about on the podcast, which is the West Memphis 3 case, taking each little each piece of it and kind of breaking it all down the way he does so great. And he had the slide presentation too with the maps of where the boys went and the timelines and all this. So that was really, really well done. You could tell he did a lot of um he did a lot of prep for that. And then the last one was the dateline panel. So the first thing they did was play a video of the Bill Hader. Bill Hader, if you know Bill Hader from he used to be from uh Saturday Night Live. But he um, he did he does impressions of all the Dateline people, so it was cool to watch him do the impressions as they were watching it. So it was really fun. Um, it was moderated by Ben Mankiewicz, by Josh's brother, so he was there. And one of the things that I thought was interesting is they were talking about striking a balance between entertainment and sensitive sensitivity to victims and families. So, and that's something we talk about a lot too, as far as true crime. Like they were saying, we know that on one hand. This does provide entertainment value, you know, these dateline stories that we present. But on the other hand, we know that we're talking about real people who have had a tragedy in their lives. And we try to strike the right balance between those two things and try to be sensitive. And that's something I think that we all kind of try to do. Um, They say that they they often follow up with the families of the victims. Um, They stay in touch with them. They kind of know what's going on. It it seems like they really do care about the people that they report on. And I kind of feel like I don't get to meet the people that I talk about most of the time. But I feel like it's kind of the same on this podcast. Like there will be times when I might make a sarcastic comment or kind of a little bit of a a side like a joke. But it's always at the expense of the of the perpetrator of the criminals, never at the expense of the victim. Because, I mean, first of all, why would you do that? It doesn't make any sense. Um, and second, all sometimes you have to do it just to kind of break the tension. You have to like, oh, God, I hate this person so much. So I have to, <laughs> if I say this, it's just kind of like, oh, just to show that this person is really a monster. So sometimes that's where that comes from. But I liked also they talk about how they try to hide the twist on the show on Dateline. So like they're telling the story, but of course they don't want to give away right away sometimes. Like who was the one who was convicted of this crime so when they're talking to people, they try to hide, so you don't know whether if they're in jail or not. And they have to go and do these interviews inside prison sometimes. And of course, at that point, the audience doesn't know that these people are in prison. So, um, so Andrea Canning says sometimes, like she will go and she'll take, um, you know, makeup or a hairbrush or hairspray <laughs> to kind of glam up the women because, of course, they don't have a lot of that. I mean, so they look—you can kind of tell that you know they're not out in public where they can get makeup and things like that. And so she'll bring that and kind of try to glam them up a little bit to make them, people don't know right away that they're in jail. That's something they reveal later on. Um, Or sometimes they'll hide the background of where they're sitting um, to make it look like they're not in a cell or in a, you know, a prison room. Uh, I think one of them said at one point they actually took a painting off the wall in their hotel room and brought it (laughs) to put it behind on this blank wall to make it look like maybe he was sitting in a hotel room. So just trying to be very creative with some of these things I thought was really interesting just to show that when you're doing things on camera, you you have to be aware of those things too. Then that night, um, we just we were going to get ready to go to the meetup that was the official meetup with Gen Y and Thinking Sideways and Truth and Justice and True Crime Garage was all going to be downtown Nashville, a place called Acme Feed and Seed, um, which is on Broadway Street, where they have all of like, you know, the the clubs and the honky tonks and the live music and stuff. But we were going to be going there. Um, But before we stopped downstairs at the hotel to have something to eat at this very small pub. There's only a few chairs and tables. And so I go in and I sit down and my sister's sitting there. We're looking at the menu. And all of a sudden I turn around, I go at the table next to us. I'm like, that's Juan Martinez. And Juan Martinez, as you probably know, it was the prosecutor who prosecuted the Jody Arias case. And I knew he was going to be at the at the convention. He was going to be there Sunday. And I was looking forward to that. But he was, you know, sitting right there and just... And I noticed that the people he was with—I don't know—one of them was somebody that was family member or friend of his. But there was at least two of them that looked like they were just people. They were at the conference who were just kind of ran into him and they were sitting and having a drink and having a chat and you know just hanging out and having fun. So that was really cool. But I didn't want to—I really didn't want to interrupt him because you are always having dinner. You know, you don't know how to do that. But I have a friend—friend friend who came with me. Her name's Martha, and she's like, she wasn't at the conference. She just was there in Nashville. And she said, well, I'm not going to go to the conference tomorrow, so I'm going to go say hi to him. So so she, you know, and it looked like it did look like they were done. They were just kind of sitting there. They didn't have food in front of them or anything anymore. So she went and introduced herself. And before I know it, my sister gets up and she's talking to him and she's calling me over. And he was very, very nice, super nice. And just, oh gosh, this guy, he laughs a lot. He you know, smiles and laughs, you know, he's just having a good time. So that was fun to see because, you know, you see these prosecutors in the, and they just seem so serious because, you know, they're doing their job, but when they're not at their job, then you get to see their personalities, I guess. But he was super nice. I told him I was going to go see him um, the next, you know, the next day at the presentation. So, and he was just very, very nice about it. took pictures with us and all of that. Then went to the downtown thing. It was also crazy. A lot of people got sick, though. A lot of people didn't end up showing up. They got sick or I don't know if that means hungover or really sick. Some people said they had the flu or like a 24-hour flu or something was going on. But some people didn't show up um, because of that. But there was still quite a big crowd. And it was a, it was a lot of fun. Again, there was uh, Tyler from Minds of Madness was there. Yolanda and Mark, of course, was with, with me. Misconduct was there. Justin and Aaron, you know, were there. Um yeah, just pretty much every everybody was there. So that was that was a lot of fun. Um, and then Sunday was the last day. It was a day to say goodbye to everybody. So I made sure to go around and take pictures. And also Sunday tends to be less crowded. Um, so I thought, okay, this is the time where I can go say hello to people and, you know, hang out with, with uh, Justin and Aaron. And because before they just had so many people around them and I'm like, you know, I want to let the listeners have time with them and not not be in the way because um, I can always see them later. So so Sunday I got to do that. I got to hang out with uh, Laura from the fall line, um, Charlie from Insight. She let me come and sit at her table in the morning because people were looking for me and were sending me messages saying, oh my God, it's the last day and I haven't got to see you yet. Where are you? I keep missing you. So I told Charlie, uh, I think I'm just going to come and sit there in the morning so people you know, can come by and I can say hello and you know do all those things. So Charlie was again very, very gracious to allow um, me to kind of hijack a little bit of her table that morning, <laughs> so that was fun. Um, and then I went to go see uh, the Juan Martinez uh, session, and it was called "Behind the Self Defense Claim." And of course, he was talking about the Jody Arias case. He had a nice slideshow there with pictures and things, but he explained that even though we look at that case and we think, and you can go back and listen to, you know, my episode on it, but people will think, oh. Um, that's a slam dunk. I mean, oh, my gosh, they got all this evidence. They have pictures that, you know, she left behind in the camera, you know, all these things. But he was explaining how it wasn't a slam dunk because high profile televised cases are really hard to win. And the reason why is because of public perception. So um, people think they know the case. And he said, and even though you have a jury and they're supposed to be sequestered, they're not supposed to talk. He goes, they hear things. They see them. Of course they do. Even coming into court, they see all the reporters out there and they may hear what they're saying as they're on camera. He goes, So there's a lot of information that gets to them. And of course, those are hard to win. He goes, And the other thing, too, is they want to be super, super careful because they know whatever their verdict is, that everybody knows, okay, that's the juror who said that this person's guilty or the juror who said this person's innocent. And they are very mindful of that. So they want to be very, very careful. So those are harder to win. He said, you know, for, look at what happened with the Casey Anthony case. Everybody thought that was a slam dunk, and it wasn't. The OJ case, everybody thought it was a slam dunk. It wasn't. Again, these are things, cameras in the courtroom, media, all of this stuff, they're harder to win. So he knew that he had to be really, really careful about that. But as far as how things look, we see things from the outside. And he was he gave one example of sometimes the public perception can be, you know, difficult. Like, you can't win, put it that way. He said, so, for example, when he was going to the courtroom each day, he would um, go between the buildings. So he wasn't going outside and then to the other building. So he never was in front of the cameras. Well, the news media was telling the DA, hey, we don't have any pictures of the prosecutor. We don't have any video to roll of the prosecutor for the nightly news or whatever. And so the DA actually told him, OK, go through the, the public entrance, start going through the public entrance so, so they can get their picture, you know. So he's like, all right. I mean, that's his boss. He's got to do that. Right. He's like, whatever. OK, I'll go that way. The very first day that he did that, because he's walking through, there's cameras, of course, and whatever. He said there was a a, a lady who was walking with a cane and she stopped him because she recognized him from, you know, TV, the courtroom or whatever. And she asked him if he could sign her cane. And he was like, okay. <laughs> so, you know, she gave him a pen or whatever, and he signed her cane, you know, his Juan Martinez. Well, of course, then there was all this outcry. Oh, my gosh, you know, here's the, the prosecutor. You know, he's a public figure, and now he thinks he's Mr. Hollywood, and, you know, what's he doing signing this cane? That's so inappropriate. And he said, okay, what was I supposed to do? tell this lady, get away from me. I'm not signing your cane. He goes, that would have even come off worse, right? He goes, and then I thought, hey, I'm a public servant. I'm you know doing my job. Who am I not to sign her cane if that's what she wants? And I thought, you know, that's a good point. You know, I guess you really can't win, but he was just trying to be a nice person. And having met him, I thought I could totally see that because He was a very nice person, very gracious. He wasn't going to be like, get away from all these people bothering me at all. He was just very nice. He was very um, even almost solicitous with you, like, hey, oh, what can I do for you? And, you know, that kind of thing. I thought "Mm, that's probably just his personality. So and then he had also talked about his strategy. He was criticized, again, in the public, in the media, in the courtroom as being all over the place, like, oh, he keeps switching gears. He's not, you know, we can't follow what he's trying to do. And he said that that was a strategy that he came up with because of the times where he dealt with Jodi Arias, he realized that, first of all, she was a master manipulator. She was a very good liar. She never got rattled. You guys know this. If you watch those, they have those videos you can see when they were interrogating her the first when she first got arrested. She seems completely calm and cool and collected. She's being questioned about a horrible murder of her ex-boyfriend and She's very calm and cool. And he said she knows how to stay unrattled and she's going to always have an answer no matter what. And I have to throw her off her game in order for the jury to see the real Jody Arias. And he showed some pictures. He showed how, you know, her mugshot picture when she's smiling so cute with her head a little tilted. You know, he's like, this is what I was dealing with. And I had to show this. And he shows the picture after she's been incarcerated and she looks very hard and kind of, you know, pissed off. So he says, I have to show this. So that's why he was kind of going all over the place. He goes, so I'm talking to her. Well, because of course she was on the stand. He goes, I'm talking to her. I'm kind of switching gears, switching gears. And he goes, and one of the times is when I could finally show who she was. Because she had said that her little pinky finger was broken because you know, Travis Alexander was abusive. And one of the times he had ended up hitting her with something and it broke her finger and now was all crooked. And if you guys remember that, you could... There's a video of it where she's showing her little crooked finger to the jury and showing how crooked it is and doesn't lay flat and blah, blah, blah. And then he starts talking about her sister. And people, you know, it's like, oh, don't you have a sister, right? Yeah. Well, is she an older sister or a younger sister? And you can tell she's like, okay, he's throwing me softball questions. No big deal. She's very calm and then he puts up a picture of her with her sister. He goes, Oh, that is that's your sister, right? And she's like, Yes, you know. And she's she's looking at him like, duh, what are you what are you stupid, you know? (laughs) And then and then he zooms in because her hand is over the shoulder of her sister. Like she has her arm around her. Oh, I see your hand right there on your sister's shoulder. Isn't the hand where you have your pinky that was all crooked? He goes, It looks pretty straight there. He goes, and I'm looking at the date on this picture. And this is after the date that you said that it's been broken. And and he goes, hmm, that's interesting. And he goes and she immediately switched. She was ticked. And then after that, she started getting flustered and people started to see because her emotions came out and there were anger that she wasn't as calm and cool and collected. So now she was straight up lying about things that he would catch her in, catch her in, catch her in. So the the jury could see what she was really like, which I thought, see, this is why you can't always judge a book by its cover. He was using the strategy that nobody could see coming. And then that kind of changed the course of the trial. So I thought that was really cool how he explained that. And I got to meet him after. So he came off the stage and I went out for a minute. I came back and he was there with a couple of people. And I went up to him and I said, oh, yeah, I remember me. I met you in the pub last night. I'm the one, you know, because my sister had told me I have a podcast." Blah, 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 and I'm was talking about that. I said, I'm the one with the podcast and and uh he was so funny. He goes, Oh yeah. He goes, We were too loud last night in the pub, weren't we? <laughs> like he was apologizing that and I said, No, not at all. You know, it was it was fine. You were having a good time, you know, and this is what this is for. So um so yeah, we got to connect and um he took my information and we kind of, you know, said we're gonna connect later on. So who knows, he may be on this podcast in the future. Um, I think that would be really fun. He's very interesting. He's a lot of fun. And uh, we might have him on as a special guest. We'll see. So, took a last turn around the pod, <laughs> around Pod Row, Podcast Row. And I finally got to talk to Nick and the captain. They didn't have a bunch of people and just kind of checking in with them, seeing how they were doing. And so that was really fun. Got to go spend a little bit more time with Justin and Aaron from Gen Y. I act- and then on the way out, I got to say hello to um Jim Fitzgerald, which I hadn't got to do that because he'd been either in a presentation or something. So got to say hello to him and tell him, you know, that I had been following his career and all of those things. So that was really that was really cool. And then on the way out, I actually also saw Ben Mankowitz and he stopped and said hello to us. I said, Hey, how are you gonna? Because he remembered us from I guess fuse when we were there, and he was very nice, very nice guy, um so that was fun, and the last thing on the way out I was checking out, I saw the captain by himself, oh my God, it was like a unicorn unicorn sighting <laughs> nobody <laughs> there wasn't fifteen people around him, so we got to you know chat for a little bit about crime con and about things coming up and um, and I got to tell him, and he was excited about was that we are planning you might have heard this, maybe not it's brand new. a few of the podcasters started saying, hey, let's do something that we just have a podcaster's row in a bigger form, all true crime podcasters. So we all are said, hey, we're, we're up for it. We'd love to do that. So tentative plans, but put it on your calendar because we're really uh, committed to, do, to having this for you guys, is that we're, gonna, we're planning a true crime podcaster weekend in 2019, in July 2019 in Chicago. But as things come out, of course, you'll be hearing it on all the podcasts and all the True Crime podcasts, we'll be talking about that. And I'm sure we'll have a Facebook page and all those kind of things so you guys can find, find that. But July 2019, and, you know, that should be a, a blast. And we've already got some, you know, a lot of podcasts who are saying, hey, we want to we be part of that. So it's going to be amazing. And also, don't forget Potter and Love. So Potter and Love is August 10th through 12th this summer in New Orleans. So there's going to be panels, presentations, meetups with podcasters. Um, Some of the people are going to be there. Generation Y, Murder Dictionary, True Crime Fan Club, The Trail Went Cold, Hillbilly Horror Stories, and me. And also other podcasts that are not true crime. All kinds, guys. Comedy, History, Paranormal. Check it out at um, love. And if you use my code there, which is once, you will get 10% off of your registration. So check it out because it's going to be smaller. So you're going to be able to really spend time with the podcasters. It's um, going to be a lot less expensive than some of the big conventions. Um, It's going to be kept to a certain amount where it's not going to be huge. So it's not and it's not going to be as expensive. And the room rates here are about 129 bucks, which is amazing for New Orleans. So. Last thing, second anniversary show will be on June 4th. I launched this podcast on June 9th, 2016. So we're already going on two years, which is amazing. It went by so fast. And what I'm going to do, I'm going to do a couple of things on that show. But one of the things I'd like you guys to be involved, because I mean, it's not a podcast without you guys. So I want you to be part of it if you want to be. So the way you could do that is you could record a greeting. Anything you want to say, you want to just say hello, you just want to say your name, <laughs> you want to, you know, give, you know, talk about a memory of the podcast, whatever you want to do. And you can record a greeting because I need recording um, for the podcast. You can either email it if you have access to recording equipment. You can email that to Esther, E-S-T-H-E-R, at com, Or you can just call our Google Voice line, And that phone number is 408-909-TRUE. That's 408-909-8783. And you can leave a recorded message there. So we're going to try to play as many as possible on the anniversary show. So that's going to be really cool. So if you want to be part of it, do that um, sooner rather than later, because we're going to put that together fairly soon. And that will do it for this episode of Once Upon a Crime. I am looking forward to going into my second year of podcasting for you guys and it's going to be amazing i have so many great series that i'm planning uh, make sure that you're following me on twitter at upon a crime on facebook and instagram on once at once upon a crime pod you'll get to know what's happening as soon as i know all right so thanks very much you guys have an amazing week and till next time be good to one another